You're listening to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So this week, Mark Zuckerberg, who is worth tens of billions of dollars, had to do what very few people on Earth would ever want to do, and that is go and sit before Congress and answer a bunch of really difficult questions. Although the thing was, most of the questions that Congress asked weren't that difficult. They were things like, how does the internet work? And are you guys just like Twitter? And do you email within WhatsApp? There were some good and tough questions for him, but most of them were not. But this week, I decided that we should have someone on who not only knows Mark Zuckerberg and has interviewed him, but was actually at the hearings. Uh, My guest is Kevin Roos. Kevin worked for the New York Times as a reporter. Um, He's been covering tech, Wall Street, hate speech online, artificial intelligence, evangelical Christians uh, for more than a decade. He's written a couple of amazing books, and he was at the hearings. He sat a few feet from Mark Zuckerberg, uh, and he even interviewed him last week about all the scandals going on around Facebook, the Russian interference in the election, Cambridge Analytica, and so on. And so I'm really excited to welcome Kevin to the show. Kevin Roos, thank you for joining us this week. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so you were, yesterday and the day before, you were in Washington uh, in the room with none other than five foot seven Mark Zuckerberg. What was it like, in the, like actually in there, in front of Congress? Is it intense? Is it just kind of boring? What, what did it te- take us inside the room? Well, so I don't know what these things are usually like. Like, I don't cover politics that often. I've never been to a congressional hearing before. So this was my first one. I gather it was somewhat atypical in that there was a total zoo of TV cameras and, um, you know, media outlets and photographers and um, Facebook brought a whole entourage. There were all these people um, who had come to watch the hearings, just members of the public, and there were people with crazy outfits and shirts that said, delete Facebook, and people handing out flyers about how cell phones cause cancer, and just all those sort of various people who would show up to something like this were there. So it was sort of an interesting scene. Um, And as far as the actual room, um, you can imagine, you know, a, a sort of austere um, sort of Senate gallery House committee room with a bunch of seats where the members of Congress sit and then a tiny little cramped press section where they wedge us all in and you know you've got like two square feet for your laptop and your um, you know your bag and you're just sort of sitting there for hours um, wedged into this little you know place that's probably smaller than the smallest airplane seat you've ever been in. Um, so not the most comfortable setting to be a reporter that I've ever seen, but, uh, you know, I had snacks. It was all good. So when you're, so you're in there and, and you're all waiting for Zuck uh, to arrive, and uh, when he walks in, is it kind of like a prize fighter showing up for, you know, a match or, I mean, like a, you know, a fight, or is it... Uh, it's just, is it all eyes on Zuck? And, and what is what did Zuck appear like as he was kind of walking up to uh, to his seat with that terrifying photo of of five dozen cameras pointing at him? Yeah, well, he did not have walkout music, so it was not exactly <laughs> like a prize. <laughs> Although that would have been pretty great if he had, if it had just been you know like the soundtrack to the Social Network or something. Um, So he walks in, you know, he's got his whole entourage there, his policy folks, his PR team, um, all of their high-ranking sort of D.C. people. And um, and he comes in, and the, you know, cameras start just going off for, you know, just, just like maybe a minute. There's just click after click of all these cameras. They sort of descend on him. And then, you know... Somebody says, all right, guys, wrap it up, and the cameras move out of the way, and then the hearings start. And um, so let's just let's talk about the actual hearing. Um, do you think that Zuck did well, or do you think that he just kind of made it through? Like, what's your, what's your take on that? So I think the two days were pretty different. Um, day one was the Senate, and that was kind of a train wreck. I mean, it was like... You know, it was a bunch of sort of 70-year-old 
people asking Mark Zuckerberg, like basically how do computers work? <laughs> like that was, I, that was I, sort I felt of like vibe. it was, I was, I was literally waiting for a moment where someone was like, Hey Mark, um, can you help me reset my password for Facebook? Cause I can't figure it out. I mean, it, it felt to me <laughs> just, I mean, some of the questions were in just insane. Yeah, no, it was, it was sort of amazing. And you know, these are people with access to industry experts. They have staff members who prepare them like they were not coming into this totally cold and yet there was like there were just a number of questions where i was kind of like just did anyone like was this was this a pop quiz like did they know this was happening um were they prepared at all so it was it was a very mixed bag and then the second day i would say was much more focused like the house maybe it's because they saw what happened in the senate you know, how everyone was making fun of the senators for being old and out of touch. But they seemed like they had prepared a lot more. And they came with actual questions and follow-up questions and actually seemed to understand some of the issues around tracking and privacy. And so that was, like, I thought, actually a much better showing. Like, there were still some crazy parts, but it was at least uh, a respectable presentation. And so the questions that that it seemed it seemed to me as you know watching from my computer um you know that that Zuckerberg well first of all he had he had, was he had prepped through the wazoo he had you know he had notes that to answer questions that of course he never even got but it seemed from the from the you know from the senators in the house and so on and so forth that the Questions were more meant as theater than actual genuine questions for the majority. There were some genuine questions, but and that they had come to this with the their mind already made up that they are going to enact some sort of regulation on Facebook. Is that the sense that you got? There was a lot of theatrics. I mean, people talking about their districts and how you know they thought that Facebook was censoring conservative YouTube or uh, conservative video personalities off of Facebook. So there were a lot of sort of grandstanding questions, but there were some substantive ones too and things that I thought were valuable. And, you know, what is the purpose of a hearing like this, right? It's not to think through the implementation details of regulation or how, you know, privacy laws should restrict data sharing, like, it, this is not a sort of technical hearing, right? Like, they have committee meetings to do those. They have they have staffers who work on that stuff. They have, you know, legislative drafting sessions that they go through. So all that stuff takes place sort of behind the scenes. This was really, I think, meant to send a signal. I think this was sort of a signal to Mark Zuckerberg that just said, hey, like, you're not above this, right? Like, you are not exempt from the rules and processes that every other company in America has to follow. And like, we can punish you, right? Mm. We have the power to make your company harder to run. We can regulate it. We plan on regulating it. And I think that was sort of, if you read it as sort of a, a symbol of Congress trying to say to a company that has largely been unregulated for most of its life or very lightly regulated, like, you're not immune to this. You're not any different than any of the other companies we, uh, you know, we, we regulate and, um, and we're going to figure out a way to regulate you. I mean, I think there's just, even Mark Zuckerberg said basically like regulation is inevitable. Like we will be regulated. It's just a question of how. But isn't – so one of the things – I've written about this a little bit um, and so some other people. It seems to me that, that you know, the, the change of face from Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and so on has been that they want to be regulated partially because by being regulated, they can ensure that there is no company that could ever grow as quickly and as big as they have because the part of the reason that there's so many people on Facebook is because Zuckerberg has – you know, gone and broken so many privacy rules uh, to get there. And if there were regulation in, enacted that you, in, a new company wouldn't be able to do that. Is that, is that plausible? Do you think? Maybe. I mean, that, that certainly came up as a possibility. Like if we regulate Facebook, does that just mean that, you know, cause they, you can't just regulate Facebook, right? You, you can't pass the Facebook law that says, um, 
you know, th- these rules apply only to Facebook and no other social network or no other startup. Like, that's not realistic. I think what would be more realistic is that they would have a set of rules that would apply to all startups and all social media companies um, that would that would apply equally. And And the thinking behind this line of argument is basically, you know, Facebook has billions of dollars, like they can afford to hire you know, compliance teams to make sure that they're following all these rules. But like a kid in a dorm room starting the next Facebook does not have the capital to be able to deal with that. And I think there's some precedent for that. I mean, one of the effects that the financial regulations had on Wall Street banks after the crisis was like, it's really hard to start a bank now. You know, there there are no new banks. And so that's, um, that's not that's not a, a sort of made-up concern, but I also think it's very self-serving. I mean, it's very self-serving for them to say, well, you can't regulate us. It's also just a weird talking point. Like, you can't regulate us because then we'll be too powerful. <laughs> it's sort of like um, a disingenuous-sounding argument. I don't know. Like, what, do you think there's any merit to that? I mean, look, I, I, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, Zuckerberg is incredibly calculated. Um, he is the kind of person, and I don't think there are many people out there who are like this, but um, uh, it, he is the kind of person who is capable of thinking 20 moves ahead. Uh, um, I, I remember once I heard this um, this anecdote, and who knows how true it is, but that he was on a, a friend's pli- private plane. He was playing chess with a with some kid or or and uh, he kept losing. The kid had some strategy, so he like wrote a quick algorithm on his computer to kind of understand the different moves that he could do to to win. And um, and I I think that's the way his brain works. He's always thinking, you know, dozens and dozens of steps ahead. And so this is not a knee jerk reaction to say, yeah, maybe you guys should regulators. Um, I think that there's uh, there's definitely something to that. Do you think that the, the other thing that came up? Um, is and I want to get to. I know you spoke to Zuck on the phone last week um, and interviewed him for for an article, and I want to get to that. But do you think that that there's a chance that they could be broken up? That Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus could uh, could be separated, and this is maybe a, a hope to to avoid that. Uh, yeah, I mean that's definitely. I, I can imagine a universe in which that happens. I think it's much more likely that any further acquisitions that Facebook wants to make will be very heavily scrutinized. I would be surprised if the FTC lets them acquire another app like Instagram. That's Um, a good point. But, you know, I think then it goes back to sort of our antitrust laws and, and what the sort of what the targets of those laws are. And it generally doesn't apply to things like Facebook. I mean, there has, you have to show, consumer harm, you have to, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. There's a reason that, you know, it's, it's hard to pick a target for an antitrust enforcement. So I, I'm not totally sure that that's plausible. I think it can happen, but it's, it would take a lot more unity and sort of political will than I think we see out of Congress right now. So you interviewed Zuck, um, last week. Um, uh, do you get the sense that he's a little nervous about what's going on or he's just like, eh, okay, this is just another bump in the road and we'll get past it like the hundreds of others that we've come across since I started this thing. No, I, I think he gets that this is different, right? Like I think he was very nervous for this testimony. It did not, he did not want to testify. He tried, you know, sending his general counsel and then he tried sort of offering up, um, you know, their chief technology officer, chief product officer, Sheryl Sandberg, like anything that he could do to avoid going himself, um, he wanted to do. So, I, yeah, I don't think he's sort of written this off as like an unimportant thing. And I, I think he's smart enough to understand that when you have a business that is in some ways built on trust and built on users feeling comfortable sharing stuff like anything that erodes that trust is dangerous and so i think i think they understand that even if users are not fleeing facebook by the millions even if advertisers are still happy like there's a long-term threat here which is that um that they have very few friends in government and um 
I think they now feel like they have a target on their back, and they're not entirely wrong about that. And what, what, how does the Myanmar um, violence uh, play out in this whole thing? Because I know there were a couple of questions about that, but it didn't really um, didn't come up too much. But it's something that Zuckerberg has addressed. And h- how does this all play out as far as not just there, but also the 2018 elections and things that are taking place in other countries? Yeah, so this is a really interesting issue, and it's one that I don't think gets enough coverage because it's largely happening outside the U.S. But, like, Facebook has one set of problems in the U.S., right? It has political interference, Russian interference in the elections. It has this sort of question of monopoly. It has, um, you know, it has political censorship issues. Um, In the developing world, it has, like, a completely different set of problems and one that is much harder to unravel because in places like Myanmar, where there's a literal genocide going on right now against Rohingya Muslims, like Facebook is the internet for people there. I mean, they have something like 90% penetration in that in that country. They are ubiquitous. Everyone uses Facebook all the time for everything. And it's become violent. I mean, it it's the primary way that people spread anti-Muslim hate speech and propaganda. And, you know, the UN went to investigate this in Myanmar earlier this year and came back and said Facebook is, is a primary contributor to the genocide. And, like, that is something that Facebook is totally unprepared to handle, right? Like, think about how hard it's been for them to get a handle on their platform in the U.S. And, like, all of their executives are... Americans who speak English and live in California and think about things from an American point of view. And how are they supposed to deal with problems like this all the way on the other side of the world in a country that none of them speak, in a culture that none of them understand, and frankly, in a market that's not big? I mean, one of the key things that's sort of interesting about this Myanmar situation is that Facebook is more important to Myanmar than Myanmar is to Facebook, right? Like, it's a very small market for them relative to their... That's the case with a lot of little countries around the globe, right? Totally. I mean, this is happening in Sri Lanka. It's happening in Vietnam and the Philippines. Like, they are... um, they are not making a lot of money from these countries. And in fact, they might be losing money on some of these countries. Um, But they have become totally central to life there. And it's causing violence and fueling authoritarians to come to power and just having these sort of effects. And like, that's a thing that I don't think they have any idea how to handle. And it's actually having real, real consequences there. There's ethnic cleansing, there's hundreds of thousands of uh, refugees that are fleeing to neighboring countries. Um, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a really big thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's real violence. It's people dying, and so so I, is there a is there something that they can do? To, I mean, it's one of the things that I I you know look, you and I have both been doing this a long time, and I what I cannot understand for the life of me is are people good and technology like Facebook and Twitter and things makes them do bad things. Or is it that they are bad and this is just a way that they can do them, you know, uh, innocuously or or even not? Well, I think it's – there are a couple issues here. One is like obviously Facebook is communication infrastructure in a lot of places. It's how people message each other. I don't think anyone's saying that like – that, you know, Verizon is to blame for hate speech or um, – you know, that a big wireless carrier has a duty to um, police the private messages that people are sending to each other. I think the the bigger issue is, is sort of the, the public broadcasting part of these platforms and the news feed, right? So, like, if what does well on the news feed and gets in front of people's eyes is outrageous and controversial and violent, um, because that's what, you know, that's the metric that these feeds are optimized to promote, like then, then yeah, you will have violent content surfacing in people's feeds. You will have 
outrageous extremist politicians that do very well in elections because that's how Facebook is designed. Um, and I think that's just a sort of design flaw that they're going to have to contend with. But again, like if you can imagine, you know, how difficult it's going to be for Facebook to clean up its platform in English, um, and then imagine that, you know, 90% of Facebook's users are not in the U.S. Like we're really talking about a very small part of Facebook here. And that's a part that I think when you start asking people who work at Facebook about Myanmar and um, Sri Lanka and the places where there's violence, like it's sort of too much for them to think about. Like they almost can't contemplate it. And when they do, it becomes very uncomfortable for them. Like I don't, I think they want to avoid thinking about that stuff as much as possible because, you know, they're not evil people. They're not bad. They're not cheering violence. They, it, it shocks and, and disturbs them, but it's not something they feel like they have a lot of control over at the moment. And do you think that it's is it is this stuff fixable? I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. <laughs> and I think um, you know the stuff that they're doing now is basically trying to like hire more moderators to police content and develop better AI. But man, like you almost wonder whether it'd be easier for them to just say, "Look, we you know we don't." make a lot of money in Myanmar. It's, we're clearly causing a lot of pain there. Like, let's just shut it down. Like, let's, let's hit, the, hit the kill switch on this and see if things improve. And I think that's, you know, I've, I've asked their head of newsfeed that point blank. Like, do you think you should shut down in Myanmar until, um, until people, you know, are, are capable of handling this kind of enormous power. And he said, you know, we were thinking about a lot of options, but there's also a lot of good that comes out of this. And, you know, we don't want to do anything too rash. And, and I think they are just sort of at a loss for how to handle this. I would be at a loss too, to be quite honest, but, but Zuckerberg believes that AI can fix this, right? Uh, Yeah, that's certainly what he's saying, right? Like, I think, you know, there's this sort of AI salvation narrative where, like, all of the problems that tech platforms are currently struggling with, AI is going to come along and, like, take that off their hands and just clean up the platforms automatically. And, like, I think you and I both know that's not going to happen. Uh, well, it, always... what, what will happen is it will happen, but then it will create completely new uh, problems that they never foresaw. And it, it seems that, that, right. that there's so much naivety in in this idea that that it's a, it's a, it's so funny there's always this constant technology creates a problem and we can use technology to solve it and each time it creates a new problem and it seems like everyone on the outside notices that but the people running these companies are oblivious to it right i mean do you remember i i always think back to do you remember the the tay incident yeah <clears throat> so the, uh Microsoft. Uh, yeah, so so basically, yeah. Microsoft like built this chatbot using AI, and um, you know, basically, it was having conversations on Twitter, and you know, people, it would take things that people said to it and sort of incorporate that into its into its learning model, and you know, train itself using the conversations that people were having on on social media, and like. They released this thing, and within like four hours, it was like saying "Hail Hitler," and like it had become a Nazi, and it was yep. saying all kinds of vile and racist stuff, and like because people were purposefully trolling it, because people had figured out, oh, like, ha ha ha, if we say "Hail Hitler" to this bot, like it will learn that and say it back. And so Microsoft had to shut it down, like, almost immediately because it had just gotten too toxic. And I thought that was, like, like I think we will be looking at that in, like, 40 years as, like, the signal that, like, oh, this is going to go really weirdly. Like, this is not going to be a smooth process. And I think I, that struck me as something that people just sort of laughed off at the time. But it was actually quite instructive. Like, when you actually do try to build AI that can sort of interact with real-world social groups, um, people figure out how to misuse it pretty quickly. Well, and you've written a lot about um, about 
social groups online that use technology to uh, to push out hate and to even organize. You 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 uh, you were embedded essentially with a bunch of trolls uh, during Charlottesville. Tell us a little bit about about what that experience was like. Yeah, so this was um, a service called Discord, and Discord is basically a chat app for gamers. It's like if you if you've ever you do you guys use Slack? Uh, we yeah we we do we I mean we use it not that much. It's you know it's maybe like there'll be like ten things posted a day, but um, uh, but we you know we use it. It's it's definitely useful. Yeah, so Slack is like, you know, workplace chat. And and Discord is basically Slack for gamers. And so they use it to coordinate teams and figure out, you know, trade strategy and play Warcraft and stuff like that. So this is relevant because sometime last year, um, there were a bunch of white nationalists who had... um, started coordinating this rally in Charlottesville, and they figured out that Discord was a pretty good place to do that. Like, it it had all the features they needed. It was private. It was encrypted. They couldn't be, you know, spied on by reporters and law enforcement and stuff. So they got into Discord and started plotting this rally that became the Unite the Right rally that, you know, we got so much coverage of, and Trump, you know, said there are good people on both sides, or bad people on both sides. And I think... um, that was sort of a uh, an interesting experience. I was I was in some of these chat rooms leading up to Charlottesville and and sort of observing how they were planning this, and eventually you know wrote the story and and Discord eventually banned the white nationalists and it became sort of a a flashpoint for for them, um, and that was that was interesting. I mean I think they when I first brought this to Discord's attention, like hey uh, there are these white nationalists that are organizing you know, violence on your platform, their first response was sort of like what, you know, every platform's first response is. It was just, you know, well, we just make the tools, right? Like, we just make the tools, and if people, you know, misuse them, then that's on them. And I think they eventually, after after the actual rally, after there was, you know, after someone got killed, they started thinking, okay, maybe we do have a responsibility to not just make the tools, but also enforce some rules around how they're used. And I think that's pretty similar to what Facebook is going through right now. Do you think that, um, well, first of all, where, where have the white nationalists gone now? Are they, are they in like five private Facebook groups? Are they on WhatsApp? Like where, where are they now that discord has pushed them out? Um, I think some of them have moved to telegram, which is a, um, sort of secure messaging platform that's basically sort of like WhatsApp or, or Signal or something like that. So so a lot of them have gone there. Um, I think some of them are hanging out in other places, maybe on other discords, but I there's not sort of a centralized meeting place that I can tell. And do you think that, um, you know, in light of all of the stuff that's happened do you believe that there is a way, you know, Zuckerberg was asked at the, during his testimony, he's talked about this in interviews with you and other people, that that they can solve the Russia problem, uh, especially in 2018 or 2020. Um, you and I have both written about the fact that um, there is, the, you know, fake news in 2016. It was nothing compared to what fake news in 2020 will be where you have fake video and fake audio and, uh, you know, video clips of world leaders saying things that they never said and, and uh, being unable to kind of differentiate between them. Do you think that Facebook can solve these problems or is it just, is it just going too quickly and it's impossible? Oh man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's the million dollar question, right? Well, it's the the $500 billion question, I think. I don't think it I don't think they can. I think that um I think that the the problem that they face is the that that we people use people always use technologies in unintended ways. Um and you know, no matter what the technology is, Twitter was designed by four random, you know, 
well, it was maybe 11 people, but really four people that wanted to be able to text each other when they were out drinking or at a concert or a club. And, And next thing you know, it is now the place where Donald Trump, you know, calls world leaders nasty names and attacks the media and tries to screw up our democracy and so on and so forth. And, and I think, you know, and it's the, this, the problem I think is that, that it all moves so quickly. If you look at a chart of, of um, the adoption rates of technologies, uh, it took the telephone a hundred years before most people had it in their homes and, and televisions longer and, and, um, and, and the internet and mobile devices, it's been a decade, uh, and, and smartphones and, and uh, social media and so on and so forth. And, and I think that um, when it comes to AI and these other technologies, it's going to be even quicker. Uh, it's like an accordion that just kind of squishes together. And I don't know if, if we can create technologies to solve these problems before they actually happen. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a question about whether you can – eliminate all bad behavior on the internet? I think obviously the answer to that is no. Um, But I think that the way these systems are designed has a big effect on what kinds of things get incentivized. So like, I I keep going back to this. Like, I think the, the most consequential thing that Facebook ever did was to implement a non chronological newsfeed to say, you know, instead of showing you the most recent stuff, First, we are going to rank your newsfeed in order of engagement. Like we are going to show you what we think is the most interesting first. And the way that they calculated what was interesting is like what people were talking about, what was getting a lot of attention, basically what was like exciting and big and controversial and loud. And it became sort of this popularity contest, and people figured out that, you know, maybe your, like, racist meme goes farther than some more nuanced discussion of immigration policy. Maybe, like, some crazy conspiracy theory about how, you know, vaccines cause autism is going to go farther than some boring New England Journal of Medicine article. And so the design of the platform actually encouraged more people to become more extreme. And it created this sort of feedback loop where, like, if you wanted to get seen on Facebook, you had to really test the limits of what was acceptable and what was true. And I think that's how we ended up with the Facebook that we have today, where, like, you're, you know, you you have all these hoaxes, you have all these conspiratorial stories, you have all this clickbait, like, that's not um, that's not an accident, right? That's sort of baked into the design of the platform, and I think that's mm-hmm. one really big thing that they have done that they they you know they might have to undo at some point. Like they might just decide we this you know we have created a monster here, and you know maybe there's a way to sort of take some of that out. Maybe we shouldn't allow links on Facebook, you know, Instagram doesn't allow links, right? And it's, it's pretty clean by, by comparison. Um, maybe we shouldn't allow, um, you know, people to have more than, uh, X number of followers. Like maybe we should cap the size of any given person's influence. So that you don't have these huge, you know, celebrities that are pumping out crazy stuff all day. So like there are, design problems with these platforms that I think they could address, but you know, that just, that, that doesn't stop bad behavior. It just sort of limits the influence of it. Well, it's interesting because you bring up the Microsoft AI bot and, um, and I was talking to someone the other day about that who had worked on it and, uh, and they were saying that, that there's now a new version of the bot that exists and that you can chat with on, you know, kick and, and, and DMS and so on and so forth. And, <clears throat> and and I said, well, how did you guys solve the problem of it being a you know talking about Nazis and so on? And what they do is they um, they go into some of the worst places on the internet, like 4chan and some of these really gross message boards, and they take all the things that are being talked about on there, and they use machine learning and AI to teach the bot the things that they shouldn't be talking about, and it's it's largely working. And and I wonder if. Part of the problem is that 
you know, Zuckerberg and all those people that live in Palo Alto uh, and drive their Teslas and, and you know, uh, and that are largely not bad people as, as a, you know, they're not out there being racist and, and doing terrible things. They may, be, may, may not be the most copacetic when it comes to actual business decisions. But I wonder if part of it is that they need to treat, teach the platform about bad things in order to avoid them from happening. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's that definitely like has to be part of it, right? You have to when you are Facebook size and have that much influence, like every decision you make, you have to think, okay, like how could this what is the worst case outcome here? You know, how could this be exploited? How could it go wrong? Um, and that's something that they just didn't do for a long time. Like they, you know, they thought, well, Obviously, if we, you know, allow third-party developers to, you know, just hoover up gigantic amounts of data about Facebook users, like, obviously, they're going to make that to use cool and compelling apps and games. And, like, why, you know, why would we not do that? And I think now it's sort of becoming clear, like, oh, we, we actually do have to sort of think about the consequences. So one of the things that I think has happened a lot in the Valley is that um, with these big tech companies is they only respond to problems when it affects their bottom line. Um, YouTube uh, only responded to the problems with, you know, Logan Paul when there were advertisers threatening to quit. Uh, it They only fixed the problems with YouTube Kids TV when when you know hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising revenue was pulled from the platform because they didn't want to be seen next to that content um, and is has there been enough of a uh, financial crisis at Facebook for them to properly respond to this or is there a chance that you know now that the cameras are off and Congress is going to go back to its other talking about something else that they don't understand, uh, that they end up, you know, just not fixing these problems. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I don't think they will fix these problems unless they're forced to by regulation. Like, I, I genuinely think they have no reason to. Why, why, you know, they're making so much money. Why would they ever change that? Um, just out of the goodness of their heart. So, like, <laughs> I, I had an interesting conversation um, outside the, the, one of the hearings this week with uh, with someone, with another reporter, and we were sort of chatting, and, and, um, and he said something to the long lines of the effect of, uh, you know, this has been, like, a great advertisement for how powerful Facebook is, right? Like, there were, it was five hours of congressman saying, okay, well, you track us all around the Internet. You know everything about us. Um, you can micro-target these ads, and you can swing elections and, you know, get attention for things. And, like, if you are a politician running for re-election or you're a marketing executive trying to figure out how to get, you know, your brand campaign out there, like, your takeaway from the hearings might be, might not be, like, Facebook can't be trusted. It might be, I have to spend a lot more money on Facebook because clearly, uh, clearly when it comes to, um, you know, being good at surveillance and targeting like they're good at it they're really good at it do you um it, it's it's fascinating was watching you know the stock actually going up during the testimony because he was responding properly i guess um it's a perfect example you covered wall street for years um of how wall street could really care less about any of the ethical issues here they just want to ensure that they're going to make a big return on their investment right Right. I mean, they that that's not their concern. They I think there was some concern earlier in the week when um, it looked uh, well. I think right after the the Cambridge Analytica thing, there were some drops in the stock price. They lost you know something like fifteen percent. Um, yeah, it was a hundred billion price. dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I sort of suspected that was temporary, and it turned out yeah it was, and like now it's recovering. Wall Street is not going to be the forcer of change here, right? Like, by their standards, Facebook's doing extremely well. It's made a lot of people a lot of money. And um, and so they're not going to be the ones to sort of crack the whip and say, you guys have to change. Like, it really does have to be 
Well, it, it either has to be regulators, or here's another possibility, and I want to know what you think about this. So I think the people with the most leverage are actually not regulators. I think it's Facebook employees. I think no, it's, that's a good, um, it's a good point. Yeah, the, it's a really good point. But, um, I mean, what – I mean, look at some of the employees and the things that they talk about, like Boz talking about how the fact that, you know, in his memo that that Facebook, if someone – you know, if there's a terrorist attack as a result of Facebook, at the end of the day, most people don't perform terrorist attacks. So Facebook is doing a good thing because they're connecting people. I mean, are, are more employees like Boz or are more employees like you and me? Well, I think it's hard to generalize about a company with like 27,000 employees, right? Like there are obviously all kinds of people there. But, I, you know, I spent a lot of time reporting on young bankers in the wake of the financial crisis. And the thing that they hated most about their jobs was actually like not always the long hours and the, you know, soulless spreadsheet making. It was like the fact that when they told people where they worked, it was like embarrassing. And, you know, at parties they would say, you know, oh, I work in finance. And they wouldn't say like, I work at Goldman Sachs because, you know, it was not, a cool thing. It was not cool to work there in 2010. And so I think that's the danger here is that, you know, if you're an engineering student coming out of Stanford or coming out of Carnegie Mellon or MIT, and you're getting recruited by Facebook and a bunch of other places, um, you might just say to yourself, like, I don't want to go work for Facebook because I don't want to, like, have to answer all the questions from my friends about, like, why I'm going to work for the giant surveillance company. Like, you might just say, oh, I'm going to go work at, you know, at Slack or at, you know, some blockchain startup or um, or some other company that has a better reputation because, not because, you know, it's a bad job, not because you won't get paid well, but, like, because it's just a social cost. It's like, I don't want to spend, you know, years of my life, like, apologizing for where I work. Um, people want to feel good about where they work. And so I think that's a real risk is that Facebook becomes, you know, a, a less cool place to work. It's not as impressive. It's not as widely respected. And that, I think that's what that's what hurts not only the current employees, but the, but the recruiting. So one of the things that Zuckerberg said, I think twice during his testimony uh, that I noticed, is he said, as long as I'm CEO of Facebook, and as someone who is incredibly careful about what they say, <clears throat> it wasn't a, I'm always going to be running this company and these are the decisions I'm going to make, which I always thought was the case for Mark Zuckerberg. Like, I always thought that this would be the thing he did forever, like Apple and Steve Jobs, but um, or Bill Gates until he left Microsoft to go just do philanthropy. But I wondered if you, if you noticed that, A, and B, if you think that there is a chance that in the not-too-distant future uh, that Zuckerberg isn't running the company. I don't know. I mean, he controls the, you know, the voting stock. He controls the board. He's not, he doesn't want to go anywhere. Um, crazier things have happened than founders getting pushed out of their companies. But right now it doesn't seem like that's in the cards. Um, I don't know. Hmm. Do you do you disagree? Do you think he could end up? I don't know. I just out? I just it it, it 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 stung in my ear when I heard him say, "As long as I'm running Facebook, and so long as I'm running it." And it's that was it kind of stood out to me. I was like, "Wait, you're as someone who I mean, you he literally practiced everything he said uh, more so than probably anyone I've seen in front of Congress in a long time." Um, and he uh, he knew exactly what he was saying, and it is just it was fascinating to hear that. Um, so maybe it was just maybe it was just a way to hedge something that we don't know about. But um, I don't know. I thought it was interesting. All right, so let me ask you uh, a few more questions before we wrap up here. Um, do you still use Facebook? I do. Yeah. And do you worry that they're you know fully aware of everything you do and are tracking you, or are you just like, eh, that's just the thing I I have to deal with? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a trade-off, right? Like I I use it professionally, 
um, I imagine you do too. Like, you know, it's hard to be a journalist and not be on Facebook. It's good for, you know, tracking down sources and reporting and, and also promoting your stories and stuff. So it is professionally useful, but yeah, I've, I've become a lot more careful about how I use it. And, um, you know, I did download my Facebook data the other day and look through it. Have you done that yet? I I haven't done it yet. I'm part of partly because I'm a little nervous about what I might find and I may want to burn my computer. But I do know people that have and they all kind of have this even, you know, tech reporters and engineers who work at companies who have been who build this stuff and they they're still like, holy shit, that is a lot of information that you have on me. Did you have yeah, that I, moment? I, I will say it's kind of like, you know, visiting a slaughterhouse and deciding to become a vegetarian. <laughs> it's a little like, you know, after you see uh, inside the machine, you're just, you, you never quite look at it the same. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think I've become more wary of Facebook um, over the years. And, you know, there's a lot of my life that I don't share on, on Facebook or on any social media. And I'm, you know, I'm curious, like, whether the response to this sort of crisis about privacy and data will be a more general pullback from not just Facebook, but like all social sharing. Like, I don't know whether people are going to trust Instagram or Twitter or, um, you know, even like other social, smaller social networks. I don't know if that's going to be a behavior that, people unlearn. And I think if you look at like teenagers today, like they're much savvier about privacy and data stuff than we are. Like they sort of innately understand that this, these things can come back to haunt you. And I think that's a lot of the reason I don't, I I think we don't give them enough credit for like using Snapchat as their primary communication platform. And some of that is because it's cool and fun and, and, you know, it's designed for them, but some of it I think is probably their sense that like I don't want my goofy selfies hanging around forever. I don't want some company like compiling a huge profile of my data. Um, so I think there will be social norms that change out of this too, not just sort of corporate behaviors. Uh, I I do completely agree with you, and I think that you know when I look at teens and the way they use these networks and these sites, I'm I'm always amazed and impressed because they are so much smarter about it than. Uh, than anyone else I know. So <laughs> hopefully they will lead the way. All right, let's, um, uh, we're going to wrap up with a, uh, I'm going to, I want to do a, a quick uh, name and a question, and then you can tell me what happens to that person, if they're sticking around at Facebook, if they're leaving, or we'll, we'll go to a couple of other companies too. Cheryl Sandberg, where do you see her in five years? Is she still there? Is she president? Has she started a new uh, Oculus VR video game company. Give it to Uh, us. I think she is either working in politics or writing books and, uh, you know, hosting a huge talk show or something. She's not at Facebook, though. I, you know, based on zero inside knowledge. Yeah, if we're just doing fun speculation, sure, why not? She's not at Facebook in five years. All right, so... um, Mark Zuckerberg? Um, still at Facebook, um, having undergone a crisis of conscience <laughs> and sworn <laughs> off some of his earlier decisions and, you know, trying to rehabilitate his image. Maybe going uh, on another tour of, of all 50 states. I don't know. Is he running for president in the, in the future one day or that's never going to happen? No, after this week, I'm pretty confident he uh, he's not running for president. That's really funny. Uh, Jack Dorsey, Twitter. Man, I have no idea. He's probably at a silent meditation retreat in five years, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> you know, uh, teaching yoga somewhere. Um, uh, all right. Anyone else that we should? Any other names we should throw in here for fun? Where are you in five years? That's what I want to know. I'm working at Facebook. I run the uh, the uh, AI cyborg team uh, where we bring in users and we plug in little chips in the back of their head so that we can control when they go to the toilet and not. Uh, that's probably where I'll be in five years. We'll, we'll see. Um, all right. So last question. 
of all the technologies you've written about and all the things you've covered and all the things you've seen, what is the thing that scares you the most about the future? Uh, I think CRISPR is really scary. Like, we don't talk about CRISPR a lot. This is the gene editing thing. Um, But, like, man, can you imagine? I mean, they're already starting to use this in um, people in China. Like, we're going to have the ability to just, like, create designer humans. That scares me. Yeah, well, it's no. That's that's. We had a, a guest on the podcast um, a couple months ago, uh, and he was saying the same thing. It's that we don't have a. We're not going to be able to not be a part of this because China will. So China is going to create these, you know, eight foot tall human beings that are, you know, have the ability to remember everything they see and can lift a car and throw it. And uh, unless we start to do that with gene editing, uh, we're going to become the inferior race. And, you know, we all know how that works out. Totally. Well, I, I will, I, for one, am totally fine genetically modifying my, my children. So, uh, you know, let's see what happens. Yeah, I would like to like, you know, cut out the gene that gives me allergies and, uh, you know, makes me get more sleep at night. That would be great. I don't want to have to wear glasses anymore. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. Where do I sign up? Good, good. Uh, uh, China. Um, Kevin, this has been fascinating as always. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, we can, where can people follow your writing and your, your twitting and whatnot? I'm Kevin Roos, at Kevin Roos. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. And the New York what? Never heard of it. Yeah, no, you wouldn't know. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, and uh, look forward to seeing uh, what you cover next with this big Facebook saga. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Thanks to my guest today, Kevin Roos. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, and thank you for listening. I will see you all next week.